Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We are here, 30 minutes of science on your radio. Thanks for being with us. My name is Claire and this week on the show... I'm going to be talking to Ben Lewis from Australia's Science Channel because you know what what time of year it is? Cinema time. Stu, of course, you you know about. Well, every year we, we go on about it on our show. Every year yes. we do. <laughs> we do. That magical time of year when you can go to the cinema and just watch science film after science film. And, and, it, and real science, not just science fiction for a change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know how much you love your science fiction. I know, I know, but it is, you know, actual science movies. Yeah. Actual science films. They make you laugh. They make make you think maybe they don't make you laugh i don't know Stu, what do you have for us today well you know it's it's our sort of vaguely ongoing theme to talk about elements this year for the international year of the periodic table of elements Indeed. and we've got a very important element i'm going to talk about this week is phosphorus Uh, phosphorus is one of the major plant nutrients that we need lots of and some people are worried that we're going to run out because basically we dig it out of the ground. Would you say it's an element for us? Phosphorus? No? (laughs) Phosphorus, phosphor everybody. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Chris, stop rolling your eyes. What have you got for us this week? Well, speaking of plant nutrients, some plants get their nutrients in interesting ways, uh, namely by eating Insects and things like I'm talking about your carnivorous plants, plants, of course. Famously eat insects, um, which got me wondering how do they get pollinated if they're going to eat the insects uh, that would potentially be doing the pollinating? So I thought I would look that up, and turns out there has been a bit of research on this topic, and they've got some interesting plans. These these um, carnivorous plants plans they have plans (laughs) or strategies, strategies, yeah, Yeah. schemes. Um, Various schemes. What's your five year plan, carnivorous plant? Get pollinated. (laughs) On with the show. So, Cinema, the International Science Film Festival, is on again in cinemas around Australia. And to talk us through the highlights and must-sees of the program, I have with me today Ben Lewis, who is the Senior Producer of Features at Australia's Science Channel. Ben, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello, Claire. Hello. It's good to have you all the way from Adelaide. Is that right? Are you in Adelaide at the moment? Uh, yes, yeah, I, I'm in Adelaide. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. I actually remember a couple of years ago, you entered cinema yourself with a film, and it was an absolute cracker from, I, from memory. I did. I dressed up as a parasitic wasp. It was, enslaving some poor boyfriend cockroach. And I enslaved, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about that. So for, <laughs> for our listeners who aren't familiar with cinema, um, can you tell us a bit more about what it is? Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, cinema is an international science film festival based right here in, in Australia. Uh, so it's been operating for, for several years now, and Australia's Science Channel have been running it for a, a, a handful of years. And it's just getting bigger and bigger every year. I mean, it is already the largest 
Science Film Festival in the Southern Hemisphere. I mean, it is absolutely massive and it's growing every single year as well. Uh, and the great thing is we really do attract the, some of the best science videos and science films from around the world. Um, there's, uh, in this year's um, uh, program, there's videos or documentaries which you may have seen on Netflix that have been produced for Netflix. Uh, there's other ones which have been produced by some of the biggest uh, television networks in the world and production houses in the world as well. So really, this is the absolute cream of the crop when it comes to science storytelling. And it's not only your big documentaries, it's small stuff. It's uh, video, uh, YouTube videos as well. There's just an, such an incredible wide mix of uh, science stories in terms of you know the topics they're looking at, but also the approaches to storytelling. It's um, you know it really is an absolute experience to sort of see it on the big uh, big screen because it is just completely unique as a film festival. So tell us a bit more about the program this year. What are some of the highlights for you? Uh, yeah, so the the film that won best film this year is called Face of a Stranger, and it's this incredibly emotional, heart-wrenching documentary from Canada about uh, a gentleman who um, basically it was a hunting accident and he, he really literally lost half of his face. Uh, and he's living like this with just this horrible uh, disfigurement for, for several years. Uh, and then a uh, really ambitious, pretty young uh, Canadian surgeon uh, heard about his story and started trying to work on a facial transplant for this man. Um, and it's just the most incredible story going through this process of, uh, you know, finding donors, planning the surgery, trying to get everything to line up. You don't really realize how intense some of these sort of surgeries are until you see it in a film like this. And is it one of these films that's not for the faint-hearted or is it... <laughs> Uh, the, the gore is kept to a minimum, right? Um, so yeah, if, if you are a little bit, you know, of of the uh, you know, a weak stomach, you're, you're going to be fine in this. It's not a right. particularly gory film. They're not, you know, showing really particularly graphic um, surgery. There's a few moments in there, but it's not too bad. Um, but you know, it, it really is. What I really got from it, watching was just it, it really makes you reflect on identity more than anything else. And this is the great thing about science documentaries, but it really makes you think so much about how you identify other people but also how you identify yourself and the importance that your faith has in your identity um, and seeing the, the sort of transformation of this, uh, this man um, who you know, before to after his surgery and having a faith sort of return to him how that sort of you know affected him and affected the way that people uh, interact with him and even affected you know his family and his wife and things like that it's just this incredible exploration that science documentaries kind of give us it's it's about science but it's about so much more than just that as well uh cinema doesn't just happen in one place does it it's all over the country yeah so uh starting um actually starting this week and running for, uh, over the next sort of about three or four weeks, there are premiere screenings all around the country. So this is a two-hour program of the best of cinema. And these are um, being shown in 
you know, major cinemas, and not only in the capital cities as well, but in the major major regional centres. So it really doesn't matter where you are. You could be in, um, you know, capital cities, Darwin, Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne. You could also be in, um, you know, the Gold Coast or Newcastle or Bunbury near Perth as well, or Geelong, just outside of Melbourne. There's, you know, we're really um, reaching out to, because we sort of realise, you know, as Australia and Australians and people who love science aren't just in the capital cities as well, and we really want to bring that and bring that sort of excitement to uh, some of those sort of major regional centres as well. So this two-hour program, if you do head along, it's fantastic. Not only will you see Faith of a Stranger, as of that incredible film, but there's uh, you know a, a, just an incredible film about slime. And slime. whether or not slime, and whether or not slime actually has intelligence, which is the weirdest question that literally no one oh, has ever asked. This is slime, yet, slime, a, slime mold, slime mold. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it, slime mold. Yeah, um, and right. it's, it's just it's crazy what this slime mold can do <laughs> and, and what it actually means. You know, what is intelligence? It makes these sort of questions. Uh, what intelligence is? I think I might have seen a slime mold complete a maze. Yeah, so that's that's exactly this one that they're they're looking at. They, right. Yeah, it, 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 it's insane. They they get it to do all these problem solvings and <laughs> um, you know beat mazes and all sorts of things. And yet it doesn't have a brain. It doesn't have a nervous system. Somehow it can do it. What is intelligence? We don't really know anymore. But no, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's highlights like that in this program. As I said, there's. 14 screenings all around the country. doesn't matter where you are. Hopefully, we're going to be somewhere near you. Um, and if you miss out from those, National Science Week, which is in August every year, there will be a whole nother, um, uh community screening program. So normally about 400 screenings all around the country run by community groups, really you know, bringing it to your uh, location wherever you are. So, yeah, you know, Sinema International Film Festival is the best science films right to where you are, doesn't matter where you are. Now, Ben, where can, um, where can people find out a bit more about Sinema and the screenings and also how to be involved for National Science Week? Yeah, so the best place to, to go to find out all about this is cinema.australiascience.tv. So that's S-C-I-N-E-M-A. Think about science and cinema put together, Sinema. .australiascience.tv. On there you'll find all the dates for the, all the premiere screenings. You'll find uh, ticket links as well. And there'll be you know, more updates and there'll be information when it uh, comes out about the National Science Week uh, program as well when that starts uh, being released. So, yeah, cinema.australiascience.tv. All the information you could uh, possibly want, it's all there. And, uh, yeah, I hope to see you in a cinema. Ben Lewis from Australia Science Channel. Thank you so much for joining us today and I can't wait to see Cinema and these incredible films over the next month. Now, it is the international year of the periodic table of the elements and some of the most important elements to humans are those which are essential for plant growth so you got your nitrogens yeah yeah your carbons your carbons well there's plenty your of oxygens carbon. yeah. yeah 
But there's a whole lot of different elements that plants need. We call them plant nutrients. Um, But we spend a great deal of our time and energy as humans uh, using these nutrient elements to increase harvests from our crops. So obviously all of our agriculture is dependent on plants producing extra that we can use for food. So in the late 19th century, the nutrient people were most worried about not having enough of was nitrogen. Right. And a lot of European nations sent people out all around the world looking for nitrogen sources, um, which is part of the reason that they did all that colonialism back in the 19th and 18th centuries is they really, they depleted their farmland so much of nitrogen by feeding all the European populations. They went out and stole nutrients from other people. So it's the untold story of, yeah, they didn't just steal nutrients. No, they stole all sorts of things, but that was one of the reasons. So then some very clever scientists in the late 19th century figured out a way or several ways actually to extract nitrogen from the atmosphere, which is 80% nitrogen. You could almost say they fixed the problem. They did. They fixed the nitrogen problem. And that pretty much solved the nitrogen issue for developed nations who could just make however much they needed. Actually, one of the guys who did it didn't do it for agriculture. He did it to make bombs for the Kaiser in World War One. But that's a different story. That's a different story. He's an evil man. He is an evil man. I would not talk, he didn't talk about nitrogen, I suspect. No. So the the solution to the nitrogen problem also allowed the world's population to increase by about 6 billion people. So that was uh, a useful uh, thing to do. But obviously plants require other nutrients. There are macronutrients like nitrogen, which they need a lot of, and micronutrients or trace elements that they need very small amounts of, like iron and magnesium, and there's a whole lot of other little ones that they need. So one of the other macronutrients plants need a lot of is phosphorus, and phosphorus is the element that I'm going to be talking about, atomic number 15, chemical symbol P, easy to remember, P for phosphorus. When uh, Europeans arrived in Australia, they found that the crops that they brought with them did not do very well in Australia. They planted them in the ground, they grew a little bit, and then they died, and they basically got no harvests from them. And that was when they sort of discovered that Australian soils are naturally very low in phosphorus because the soils in Australia are very, very old. So they were laid down millions and millions of years ago. We didn't have an ice age which replenished uh, nutrients in the Northern Hemisphere in a lot of places. didn't happen in Australia. So until they started adding superphosphate to Australian farms, they weren't very productive. When they did add the superphosphate, all of a sudden we were riding on the sheep's back and we had a successful agricultural industry. Um, Now, superphosphate is a fertiliser produced from phosphate, rock and sulfuric acid. Um, it's effectively a non-renewable resource. What's phosphate rock? Is that like a weird subgenre of? <laughs> it's 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 not heavy metal. It's sort of right. somewhere towards the other end. Oh, of it's the not a metal at all, is it? No, um, no it's a non-metal. Superphosphate is uh, a fertilizer. It can get recycled, but it is effectively the the phosphate rock that they dig up out of the ground is effectively a non-renewable resource. You can't. Uh, replace it once it's gone. Where do they dig that up? All over the place. There's, you know, there's huge deposits of it all over the world. Um, So, and farming itself removes phosphorus from the soil. So there's phosphorus contained in all plant materials. So every time you harvest something from a farm, you're taking some phosphorus and other nutrients away from that farm. So you've got to put them back into the soil. So they constantly need to resupply that phosphorus. Uh, And globally, we use about 270 million tonnes of phosphate every year. 
for agriculture mainly, but there are some other things that it's used in. Um, and you have to actually put a lot onto the soil because it binds chemically to the soil and the plants can't take it up. So there's a whole lot of um, clay soils, for example, that bind to this phosphorus that you add to the soil. So you have to put on quite a lot more than what the plants actually use as well. Now, some researchers have been concerned that reliance on a non-renewable resource for agriculture means we'll soon run out of phosphorus and that will impact global agricultural production. But uh, so, you know, some scientists are worried about this and recently some scientists produced a map which showed global hotspots for phosphorus, which showed high concentrations of phosphorus in agricultural areas, mainly in the form of animal poo. So basically all the livestock in the world are eating plants that contain phosphorus and pooing it out back on the farmland that they uh, are living on. So if you could find a way to sort of spread that around a bit, it would obviously be a way to, to extend the, the, uh, the usefulness of that phosphorus in the cycles. So the, phosphor, the phosphorus is still there. It's just been transformed into a less useful form, such as poo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when humans eat it, most of our waste goes into sewage plants which don't sort of get cycled back onto the farm so it's sort of a one-way trip for the phosphorus um but some of them are worried that you know phosphorus i've read different estimates we're going to run out of phosphorus in 50 years or we're going to run out of rock phosphate in 80 years or 100 years so these estimates are possibly based on some misunderstanding of how much Uh, there is of this element. So first of all, phosphorus is not a rare element. There is a lot of phosphorus in the world. And it makes sense because it's so essential for life. It actually forms part of the backbone of DNA and RNA uh, in all living things. So if it wasn't readily available, life would not have used it as uh, as such an important part of the you know, of the life cycle of various organisms. So uh, current reserves of phosphorus are estimated at 70 billion tonnes. So divide that by how much we use every year and you've got around about 270 years worth of phosphorus on Earth still. So that's a lot more than the 50 or 80 years that some people are, uh, are calculating. But the reserves are not all of the phosphate rock that exists. Reserves are calculated on what is known to be easily accessible with current technology and be profitable to extract right now. So there's 70 billion tonnes that we know of that people have measured that it's there. They've drilled down and calculated how much it would cost to get it out. So we've got 270 years worth at the current rate that we can dig up and use for agriculture to keep agriculture going at this rate. Now, the estimate... Assuming that the population doesn't increase... Assuming that even even if it increases a bit, it's still going to be enough for quite some time. Now, the estimate of how much phosphate rock is on Earth altogether puts it at over 300 billion tonnes, which means we've probably got enough uh, rock phosphate for at least a 1,000 years at the current rates of use and probably a lot more. So the other thing is that it's not the only kind of minerals that contain phosphorus there are other sources of phosphorus on earth that we could potentially extract phosphorus from so if you read any articles saying that we're going to run out of phosphorus in you know in the next couple of generations they're probably greatly exaggerated there's a lot of phosphorus on earth we're not going to run out of it but that's not to say that we shouldn't try and figure out some ways of recycling some of this phosphorus in 
the systems that we already use. There's certainly ways we could improve the efficiency of using phosphorus in agriculture. We probably shouldn't rely on digging it all out of the ground all the time. But if we do need to, at this stage, we've still got plenty uh, left to go. So we've got at least a millennium's worth of phosphorus left. Don't panic about the phosphorus uh, shortage if you read about that anywhere. poison themselves remember that yeah yeah, story? Yeah, yeah 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 but this week i have another kind of similar related one that i've been pondering which is how do carnivorous plants get pollinated isn't there a risk that they will eat the bees well, I guess. Yeah, yeah there's, yes. a, there's a real risk. But, but are yeah. they pollinated by bees anyway? Well, they're pollinated by something, Stu. Sometimes it is bees. Yeah, true. Wow. Though. But anyway, let's look at that. Cause, look, I should say this was inspired by um, a couple of stories we had recently. Um, Stu did a story on the Albany. Albany? Albany. Albany pitcher plant in WA. And Claire did a story on the native bees also of WA. And I thought, do these things, things come together? Do the Albany pitcher plants eat the bees? So, yeah, I thought I would look into that. Thing is, though, we should first of all ask, what's the deal with carnivorous plants? Like, why are they carnivorous? Basically, I can I can answer that. You can. Yeah. Because this is related to your story. Your, <laughs> Absolutely. Your so, phosphorus story. So, one of, the, one of the things about carnivorous plants is that they occupy niches in the environment which have very low nutrient soils. So there's not enough nutrients in the soil for the plants. So they've adapted these means of entrapping innocent bystanding insects to kill them and break them down and use the nutrients that are contained in the insects who can bring them in from other places, obviously. There's, yeah. there's no innocence in nature. No, yeah. no, it's mm. true. Yeah. <laughs> But that's interesting because, like, you think of, like, in the science fiction movies, there's always the giant carnivorous plants in the lush jungles that will eat people. Yeah. But they're not normally in the... No, they're usually in sort of marshlands and, and yeah, that kind swamps of thing. and things yeah. like that, yeah. They also... It is also a difficult, interesting choice being a carnivorous plant because... <laughs> choice. Well, because, you know, it, it affects the, the way the plant, you know, is built. You know, they have to have these weird structures and it can affect their ability then to photosynthesize and do other <laughs> stuff and to get pollinated, as it may be. Now, what are some examples of carnivorous plants, you know, Claire? Venus flytrap. They're the snappy ones, aren't yes, they? Yes, snappy, snappy. Triffid. That's, okay. that's a fictional one. That, that also, is a fictional. There's a very common one in Australia is called Drosera, which is a uh, sundew. sundew. Yep. Yeah, so there's a lot of those. They don't actually do anything, but the insects kind of get stuck on their little – they have uh, little hairs on the sticky, leaves. kind of tendrils on the yeah, leaves. And yeah, and they're sticky on the end. And when the insects get stuck on one bit, the leaf sort of curls up over them yep. and traps um. them in there. And, of course, the pitcher plants. Which is like we, a jug of water. Yeah, which is like a jug of water. Yeah. But is, is that water at the bottom? It's more like a jug else? of death. <laughs> there, there we go. Death this, at the bottom. That's a scientific fact. Yeah. It is a jug <laughs> of death. Yeah. Now, okay, so how these things are pollinated, and we don't actually know, know a great deal about how they're pollinated. Um, so these plants are very popular because they're interesting. Um, so they're often kept like in greenhouses and that sort of thing. But then they're often pollinated by humans and, well, they don't generally eat humans. Um, so it's not always obvious what they do in the wild, but sometimes it is fairly obvious how they manage it in the wild. Um, because another one that we haven't mentioned, uh, another common 
uh, carnivorous plant is the bladderwort. And the bladderwort has a, a little little bladder, as the name might suggest, that is it's underwater and it basically sucks in aquatic invertebrates. And above the water, though, it has a big, long, tall stalk with a flower on the end. So the, the flower is very well separated from the, the bitey bit in that particular case. <laughs> right. So it only feeds on insects that live in the water itself. Or it other, yeah, other yeah, invertebrates. It doesn't, doesn't feed on flying insects that no. might be able to pollinate the plant. Well, that's a very, very good separation. of That, that is a great separation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a related one called the corkscrew plant, um, Genlisier. That has, uh, again, has flowers on stalks, but this one, it lives in kind of rocky or sandy soil, and it has like kind of underground um, corkscrew-shaped bladders wow. that, that eat like microfauna, like protozoas and that kind of thing. So they're kind of interesting. So that's basically, so that's separating the flower. Mm. You know, separation of powers, I think they call that. Separation of flowers, I think. <laughs> Another way of separating flowers and the flesh-eating old component is by time. Temporal separation. Now, there was a paper published in 2014 about a species of pitcher plant, Saraceneca alata, in which they looked at plants over a couple of different years, plants for a couple of different sites over different years, and they found that less than 1% of the plants had their flowers going at the same time that the pitchers were going. So ah. Essentially, they flowered and they ate at different times. So they separated them in time. That makes sense. In space. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are, however, some more subtle techniques. Now, there was a study published in uh, Scientific Report, Nature's Scientific Reports in 2016 on your, your Drosera sundews. And they found that they had ways of helping their pollinators distinguish the flowers from the sticky bits. So on um, two of the species, Drosera spatulata and Drosera arcturi, the flowers were, they were a bit separated from the, the sticky leaf traps, but they're also bright white. So they're really easy to spot for your, your pollinators so they would... They would not go... And they don't look anything like the leaves, pretty much. Essentially, no. Yeah. No. Um, But there was another species, Drosera auriculata. The flowers are actually quite close to the traps. And what they found with this one is that that the the flowers and the the leaves emitted different scents. They both emitted like odours, but they had kind of a different mixture of scents from from both the flower and the leaves. When they tested these on insects, they found out the prey species were attracted to both the flowers and to the leaf traps, but the pollinators were only attracted to the flowers. Um, of course, the other side of the things is, you know, do the pollinators, you know, how much, what do they think about this? Um, there was another study on Drosera that was published uh, in 2018. Again, like, yes, again, a sundew species. And this one, they looked at the hoverflies that pollinate them. And they found that, that when they approached, when they flew around, if they approached a the flower, they went straight for the flower. But if they approached a leaf, they would go, ooh, and they'd back away. So clearly, the hoverflies were detecting something there about the leaf and knowing that it was a trap. So there you go. It just shows that, that um, they clearly they set themselves up for some problem by you know eating insects, but also requiring the insects to do their pollinating. But um, you know evolution, it can jump through the hoops. It'll find a way around it. And I think it's good advice for us. If we, um, as I said, we pollinate the carnivorous plants in, in greenhouses. So I think we need to keep making ourselves useful um, to make sure that they don't turn on us and try and, and try and trap us.
And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for sticking with us and make sure you check out Cinema, this International Science Film Festival around Australia over the next month. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please reach out to us, get in touch. We love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on the Twitter. We are Lost in Science One. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris, and Stu get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.